ladies and gentlemen, to not your normal horror. Horror. That's what it is. Faux show. I am Kim. Nope, I'm not Jay. I'm Kim. I'm Jay. He's Jay. How's everybody doing? Great, grand, hopefully. Good to hear. I hope so. Hope everybody's doing good. We are fantastic. Are we, though? I think so. Yeah, we're doing good. Yeah. It's been a day. It's been a long day. It has. And what better way to end it than with a podcast episode? So, after last episode, I said this week would be lighter because last time was dark. So, it's a podcast about ice cream cones and unicorns. Yeah. Although, no. I'm going to read some more Reddit stories. Ooh. So, all of these, I have permission from the the writer to use. Mm-hmm. So, like last time, I'm going to give their um, Reddit username. So, I'll give it when I read the story and also in the show notes. So that you guys can go check them out and see what else they've written. So, I'm going to start it off with... Something is happening at the nursing home I work at. This is by Reddit user Unit256, who also has his own uh, YouTube channel with the same name, Unit256, which I have subscribed to because he's cool. So I did it. Check it out and check him out. Let's just dive right in. There you go. Before all this happened, I lived a normal life. I had normal dreams like most girls do. Since my earliest days, I always saw myself as some sort of caretaker. Then I realized my true passion. I wanted to become a nurse. Some people tried to dissuade me from this, but I always knew it would be the job that was right for me. Interacting with the patients was one of the best feelings ever. I always thoroughly enjoyed everything. Talking people up to brighten their day when unexpected medical things happened, helping them get over their fears, and just the great environment that my coworkers made as well. We didn't really have a lot of issues in the early days like we do now. When things picked up during the pandemic, it got a little bit crazier. We started having equipment and all kinds of supply shortages. People quit for a variety of reasons, which put a big strain on those of us who stayed behind. I don't blame the nurses and doctors for leaving the hospital, though. I more blamed the administrators. It really wasn't the best environment in that large hospital. I don't want to give away the name, but management was not the best. Hospital administrators micromanaged everything, even though they had no medical training themselves. Eventually, I got sick and tired. Like many of my other coworkers, I walked out. Most healthcare places request you give at least a 60-day notice before quitting so they can find a replacement in this tight labor market. It's in all the contracts, but I had had enough. I was not staying there any longer to suffer the abuse. Like I said, it was not the patients, but the administrators. Of course, this meant that I would probably be blacklisted when it came to looking for another hospital job. I was willing to accept that risk just to get away from a toxic workplace environment. I was in an an advantageous position at the time and had a nice little financial cushion to weather the storm, at least for a short while. Sooner than later, though, I would have to find a new job. I knew it would be a tough sell to get back into any local hospitals with the blacklist mark. 
After a couple months searching, my friend told me about a job she had just left at a nursing home. She said she could put in a good word for me. My friend's glowing recommendation did indeed help me get the job. She had a bit of a re- reputation there, paving the way for me to slide in, despite, slide in despite the blacklist. The interview process was a little hostile, harking back to my bad experiences in the hospital job I had left not too long ago. I had to ignore the red flags, though. The bills were piling up, and I needed to start bringing in income ASAP. This may not have been the best-case scenario, but it's all I had to work with at the time. Our patients are the dearest thing to us. They each come with their own unique personalities and require the best care practices, the director told me. There was always something sleazy about healthcare administrators. What exactly did they administrate? They acted like they cared, but not enough to be in the trenches with the providers. They were too busy bean counting and forming informal murder boards as they, that they called budget meetings and resource sinks. If you can't tell, I don't have the highest opinion of them. At the hospital, it made sense to have a sizable number of them there, I guess, because how big the operation was, but here it didn't. There were 50 beds for assisted living and 20 for hospice. This place had about five administrators. I thought we could do with one, and if I had it my way, it wouldn't be this one. The rest of the interview was more a speech about how awesome the facility was. It was pretty one-sided. At the end of it, the guy said to me, so are you interested in taking the job? I was amazed. It's usually the other way around. Like I said, this did raise some red flags, but it was okay. They needed someone and I needed the pay. I started the following Monday. A chipper head nurse named Diane met me and gave me the orientation. We toured the building while she gave me a brief history. Then we went over facility operations. Our patients are the dearest things to us. They each come with their own unique personalities and require the best care practices, she started. Stop me if you've heard this one, I joked in my head. This was beginning to sound like a cult with how much the employees love the place, the lead staff at least. Not long after, I started shadowing her and a few other nurses on rounds with the patients. It was a pretty straightforward job. There were four categories when it comes to patients at these kinds of places. This isn't a formal thing, but more of something I do in my head to keep track of how much attention to give them. The first and best are the people who are fully alert and generally happy campers. The only reason they are there is because they can no longer live by themselves. Despite the loss of independence, most were happy to be social and carry on as best they could in the confines of the nursing home. The second were people who were alert and aware but were not happy campers. They made life miserable for a lot of the staff. Refusing to take medicine, throwing food, and for the more enterprising, there were even some who enjoyed soiling themselves for the joy of watching someone else clean it. I didn't know old people could be so twisted until I started working here. The third are people who are extremely sick and are dealing with much more than just loss of independence. They're on their way to the great Huron and nothing can stop or delay it. You'll find all kinds of emotions among these patients. Some are accepting and some are not. It's part of the stages of dying. The last category I'll mention is the listless. For lack of a better word, they are human vegetables. Some may be in a comatose, some may be in comatose states. Some may go in and out of consciousness for long bouts of time. You would swear some of these people are dead if not for the faintest rise and fall of the chest. Sometimes you could see a flicker of their eyes when their eyelids were closed. It was always a bit creepy to me and downright sad. There is nothing you can do for these people. 
After I settled into my routine, I came to favor the last core category most. They were easy, no fussing or fighting. You pushed fluids through their feeding tube, changed diapers, and cleaned up a bit. Usually these people were all but abandoned by their family. This was made extra sad by the research that says people in the state can sometimes be aware of their surroundings right up until the point of death. Their hearing is intact. They can form a general idea of what, about what is happening, but they can't communicate with the outside world. The thought terrified me. It's like being awake during surgery, but having enough anesthesia to not be able to call for help. Sleep paralysis also comes to mind. If I have it my way, I'll be able to avoid all of those my life, in my life. Given that they may be able to hear, I would always talk to them and explain what I was doing. I never knew if, they, if that had an effect on them in any way. I joked in my head sometimes that I thought about I might be giving them some mental stimulation through social interaction, but they were probably cursing me out and demanding I leave in their heads despite not being able to say it so blatantly like the Category 2 people often did. One of my favorite people to visit was Mrs. Jacobs. She was a real thin old lady who had been in this sort who had been in this sort of state for close to 10 years. No family ever came around to visit her. There was an old card that sat on her bedside table. When I read it, it was dated 15 years ago. It made me question how long she had been in here. Was she really spending 20% of her life in this place? Anyways, I would sometimes come into her room and just talk. I didn't like using the break room in the facility. I always felt like someone was snooping around and listening to conversations to get dirt on me. I chose to kind of be aloof here. It didn't help my reputation to hang out with living zombies, no offense, instead of my co-workers. I'd talk to Mrs. Jacobs about all kinds of random things, from my cat to my desire to finally pay off my student debt. All kinds of mundane stuff. I tend to talk too much sometimes. She would just continue to lay there. No response, no growls or grunts. No, that's crazy to signify that she was no longer interested in the conversation. That's what made her the best conversationalist for an introvert like me. Most nurses aren't introverts and love to talk. I'm not the biggest fan, despite liking my interactions with the patients. Sitting bedside with Mrs. Jacobs made me question a lot about my own life and how I was spending it working in a job I hated. One day, I'd be a vegetable laying on a bed, trapped in my fleshy prison, and forced to listen to some random woman talk her head off without me being able to tell her to shut up. The weeks were slow at first, but sped up as I fell into a routine. As soon as I did, though, we were hit by a wave of people resigning and leaving for assorted reasons. Diane called me into her office one day after we had about three people quit. I need you in the night shift. We only have two people there and they need to be switched out. They've been there too long, way longer than we usually like. We'll cycle you back to days after a couple of weeks. I was not happy about this. This isn't what I signed up for and no one had ever mentioned doing cycles on the night shift during my interviewing and onboarding process. Diane talked like this was a regular thing. My worst fear was that I would be stuck there in purgatory for longer than two weeks like the people I was replacing. If I could have, I would have quit then, but I was just getting back on my feet financially after the long bout of unemployment. I managed a gritted teeth smile and went through a quick night shift orientation. It was sold to me as something easier than day shift because the patients would be sleeping the majority of the time. One of the outgoing nurses let me know she used the time to go to some online college classes. Good for her, I thought. I'll probably use the time reading and playing around online. One week came and went without incident. Beginning of the second week, I was called in by Diane again. 
We need to extend you by a month. I was floored. I denied it instantly. Absolutely not. My resistance was in vain, though. There was no budging. Diane seemed genuinely sorry about the situation, but we were hemorrhaging help for some, for some reason. I really started wondering if we're losing this many people, then was I making a mistake by staying here? One night, I was about to get... I was about to get extra linen in a room and I sneezed from behind me clear as day I heard bless you the feeling of it was as if I was about to start a prayer and to my surprise a voice whispered near my ear our father in heaven I turned around it was a male voice and the only other nurse on the night shift with me was a female I looked around the room and didn't see anyone I waited a second to see if someone was going to burst into laughter from the hallway Maybe they projected their voice really well despite it sounding like it was right in my ear. I quickly tried to put it out of my mind. I had a job to do and didn't want to dwell on what it could or could not be. This was the first incident of something happening and could easily be attributed to my, la- to my lack of sleep. That's the crazy thing about the night shift. No one ever gets their sleep schedule back. It doesn't just push forward a few hours like your work schedule did. The next night, it was noticeably quiet and peaceful at 3 a.m. While I was doing simple floor rounds, I felt something behind me, turned around, and saw a shadowy, girly figure wearing a hospital gown run into a resident's room. I wasn't terrified at all, partly because my mind wasn't fully registering what happened yet. I entered the room, and the resident in the room was up, an Alzheimer patient. And she said, Did you see that? What? The resident said, She went in there pointing to the closed bathroom. I waited a bit and called for help to ensure it wasn't an intruder and the unit was clear. To this day, I can't explain it, but know what I saw and oddly enough, what my patient saw despite her mental status. The other nurse on shift with me checked it out while I stood beside the door. The other nurse saw nothing in the bathroom and figured I was playing a joke on her as a relief from the quiet night. I assured her I wasn't. The Alzheimer's patient backed me up and started talking frantically about the young girl. She spoke rapidly and started flailing flailing her arms while trying to get out of bed, but was too weak and tired and almost fell back. Mrs. Bosch, you need to be careful. We just, you you just checked in here. No one is there. But her eyes, Miss Bosch said, they were pure black. She went into another tirade and the nurse patiently but firmly assuaged her between shooting piercing glances toward my way. I had already not made friends on the day shift and now was making mad the only other person on shift with me now. We walked out of the room and closed the door despite the protest of Mrs. Bosch. It was clear she was not going to calm down for a while and we didn't want the noise to wake the other residents. Three seconds after closing the door, we heard a terrifying scream. It was not Mrs. Bosch's voice. The other nurse and I charged in. Mrs. Bosch was not in her bed, and the window was wide open, letting in gusts of icy air. I'm sorry, icy wind. I ran over to the window and looked out to see if the girl who was just there was running away to get away with her prank. I needed to prove to the other nurse that I wasn't making it up. What I saw instead was Mrs. Bosch sitting cross-legged in the middle of the courtyard lawn. I jumped out the window and ran toward her. She started staring straight ahead. Mrs. Bosch, we have to get you inside now. It's way too cold to be out here. No response. Mrs. Bosch, I repeated. I bent down to look at her face and froze for a minute. Her eyes were pure black, glossy, and reflective like a giant bug. They were so shiny I could see my reflection despite the dark hue of the night. 
her head slowly turned toward me and once again let out a high-pitched yell that I did not recognize as her voice. I fell backward in fear and shock. When I hit the ground, she stopped screaming and continued to face forward. The other nurse was making her way over by this time. She grabbed Mrs. Bosch by the upper arm and pulled her to her feet without negotiation. As soon as the other nurse touched Mrs. Bosch, the black glint disappeared and I saw a bewildered look in her eyes. Mrs. Bosch looked terrified. She was never the same after the incident. Where she used to be in the first category, she quickly turned into the second category. Getting grouchier and grouchier for a few days after, we actually received a complaint from family members asking what we did to their mother. They claimed we must have abused her in some way to make her personality change so dramatically in so short a time. They threatened to pull her out of our facility, but when she went catatonic, but then she went catatonic. Mrs. Bosch matched the personality of Mrs. Jacobs soon enough and joined the ranks of the human vegetables. I was saddened by this turn of events since Mrs. Bosch was one of the most chipper of the residents. It brightened my day to see her, and within the scope of four days, she was as good as a pillow on the bed. After just two weeks, I was begging to get off the night shift. When pressed about why, I didn't have much of good reasons besides I didn't like it. There was no way I was going to explain the whole thing about Mrs. Bosch, the black eyes, and the imaginary girl who ran into the bathroom. Diane did promise some change. The change came in the switching of nurses. The other one had complained about me that night and been granted a transfer back to day shift. The newest nurse on night shift, Lauren, was not happy about this at all. I have two kids. I don't belong on night shift, she announced on the first night of us working together. I recognized that my initial voluntary alienation was quickly turning into an involuntary one fast. A few days later, doing my rounds, I saw an old lady dressed in a hospital's gown. This was not an uncommon sight for some of our sicklier patients, but usually those people were too ill to be walking around with the fluidity of this person. Thinking that the patient was lost or couldn't sleep, I signaled her from afar, or at the opposite ends of the hallway, to ask what's wrong. Grabbing her attention, she turned her face to me, smiled, and passed through a wall into a patient's room. I froze from what I saw. This time, I wasn't taking the bait. I would just ignore it and move on with my life. My new involuntary night crewmate would not appreciate me telling her about a ghost roaming the hallway so early in our working relationship. There was one last event I think I should mention here before talking about the final straw. I was checking on a patient who was a nun during my morning changeover as part of my final rounds. We have a secure building due to the vulnerability of the patients. You have to key to come in and out. Visiting family members have to be keyed in after calling over the door speaker and then have to check in at the front desk with a nurse before going on to their loved one's room. While I was in the room with the nun, Mother Melinda, a group of other nuns entered the room. They established a wall around Mother Melinda and began whispering frantically. This was weird for several reasons. First, we only allowed a max of two visitors per patient at a time because of the pandemic restrictions. There was at least nine here. Second, these nuns moved with an unhuman rigidity, rigidity, even for a group as stiff as a religious convent. The frantic whispers exploded into deafening song. The Ambrosian chanting was sure to bring up attention from all the nurses. I waited for someone else to storm in, demanding the noise cease, but no one came. I looked out the open door where the group had walked in. 
Instead of seeing the typical bustling nurses rushing from one room to another down the hall, I saw a black abyss. I looked out the window. At some point, the morning light that was barely creeping in at this time was completely gone. The window was as black as the threshold of the door. I was frozen in place, listening to the ever-increasing chant. I wanted to put my hands over my ears, but I couldn't move. One of the nurses' heads turned toward me while the others continued to sing. An extreme feeling of dread that's hard to explain came over me. The pit in my stomach dropped, and all the blood in my body seemed to flood to my feet. The nun who was staring at me smiled a slow, grimy smile. Her teeth were small, white razors with a three-pronged tongue. Her eyes. Her eyes were pure black, just like Mrs. Bosch's had been. Without warning or any crescendo, the chanting stopped. The light of the morning flooded into the room, and the sounds of the nursing home flooded the, the room from the hallway. I realized I could move and looked over to the door, then fainted. My next memory was sitting in front of Diane. This does not look good. Not good at all. We knew it would be a risk taking you on with your reputation. My reputation, I thought as she talked. But we really need the help. One more mistake like this and I'll have to let you go. I had no idea what she was referring to. I wasn't sure what was worse. Asking what I did to get this talk or to try to justify myself with the story of the nuns. I decided to shelve both ideas and revisit it later when things weren't so tense. I understand, I said. I'll tighten up. Everyone is suffering from overwork right now. I don't think anyone has the extra energy to have their work second-guessed about whether or not our nurses can serve the proper dose of medications again. There it was. Was it Mother Melinda? Oh my God, what did I do? I hope I didn't hurt her. I walked out of the private office and passed the nurse's station. Everyone's chatter ceased. I could feel all eyes on me as I sleeked by them. The glares gave off a heat I could feel on my back even as I walked out of the building and drove out of the parking lot. The next night, I got there early, helped out a few nurses catch up on charting, and made an apology to Diane. She was hesitant but accepting, a fault of nurses everywhere. I promised to work better and get my acts together. Good, she said. By the way, Charlene called out tonight. She's sick and can't make it. You'll be here all night by yourself. I'll be in a couple hours early. You have my number if you need anything. There's also a couple nurses on the other side of the building in hospice if you need it in an emergency. In an emergency? This can't be done by one person on a good day, I thought. I gritted my teeth and said, okay, I got this. That night was extremely fast-paced. Word must have gotten around among the patients that there would only be one nurse that night. They all demanded my attention with the smallest things. Ice, pillows, water, help using the bathroom. These things were all reasonable. It was just overwhelming for me. Things finally slowed down around 2 a.m. Finally, all the patients seemed to be at peace and sleeping. I got caught up on some charting and took a small mental break. It was a precious moment of sanity where I could finally catch my breath. I dozed off slightly when I heard the call bell and saw the light outside one of the rooms come on, signaling someone needed help. It was Mrs. Jacobs, my old confidant. This didn't make any sense, though. She was a human vegetable. I pressed the button for the two-way mic that connected her room to the nurse's station and held it for a moment to see if I could hear anything. A few moments passed. Hello? I asked. Do you need help, Mrs. Jacobs? No response. This thoroughly creeped me out. The only thing to do was to go check it out in person. 
I turned off the light to show it had been answered and walked over to her room. The door made a louder than usual creak as I eased it open. Maybe it was I was just more sensitive to everything at that moment. I don't know. When it opened all the way, I saw her sitting in bed upright, facing the wall away from the door. Several expletives went through my mind. I had seen too much already and was ready to run. Don't be afraid. It was a voice I'd never heard before. I was still in the threshold of the door as she talked. We've watched you with intent. You see us, don't you? Not many people can see us. Even those that do see us ignore us. We don't like that. The voice got progressively raspier. Before I knew it, I was beside the bed within arm's reach of her back. I don't recall walking toward the bed. It was like I was transported there instantly. You're as attracted to us as we are to you, I see. I don't want to be. This was it. I was finding my courage. I had had enough of all this. I was done with the ghosts. I was done with this building. I was done with everything. I just wanted to be out. That's too bad. We've chosen you. You can't go anywhere now. I tested the theory immediately and made a beeline for the door. It slammed loudly right in front of me with the door missing my face by mere inches. I stopped, stunned for a second, then tried to open the door. Patients' rooms didn't lock in case someone was ever incapacitated and we needed to get to them, but this one didn't budge. I broke down and started crying, banging on the door with the side of my fist as I slid to my knees. I was terrified beyond belief. I looked back at Mrs. Jacobs. She was now sitting facing me. There they were. Those dark black eyes staring into the depths of my soul. No, I said, you won't have me. I ran full speed at the frail old lady and tackled her, sending us both across the bed. She didn't put up a fight. I held her tight and glanced down. The eyes were closed. Bruises were all over the body and a small amount of blood was coming out of the corner of her mouth. I got up quickly, cracking a few of her bones as I applied pressure to lift myself off up. I just assaulted a 90-something woman. For the first time, I found myself praying the ghost or demon or whatever it was grabbed a hold of the lady and made her fight me back. Knock, knock, knock. My neck snapped toward the door. Is everything all right in here? We heard something from down the hall. Do you need some help? It was one of the hospice nurses from the other side of the building. I didn't know what to do. I ran to the door even though I was on the other side of the room. The door was creaking open when it slammed hard while I was only halfway across the room. The incoming nurse was a quarter of the way through when it slammed, smashing her hard into the metal frame of the door. She yelped in pain and fell, laying down with her upper body in the room and the other half in the hallway. She looked up, confused at me. Why did you do that? She yelled. Papers she was carrying were strewn along the floor. The wooden clipboard was halved. Her neon yellow scrubs had a small but growing trickle of red. We both looked down in horror. A pen had penetrated her chest. She roared in pain. Help! Help! (coughs) Please no. I'm sorry. It wasn't me. You saw. I wasn't even close to the door. She didn't answer. She was looking past me. I slowly turned around, afraid of what I would see. Underneath the bed, a pool of dark blood was spreading across the floor. The realization hit. I'm sorry. The realization hit hospice nurse and I at the same time. Our reactions were quite different, though. She screamed in horror for help even more, attempting to lift herself up. She collapsed before being able to put the weight on both her arms. It was apparent that one of them was broke. 
This sent her into a spiral of hysterics as the pen was forced deeper into inside her chest. I could hear murmurs coming from Mrs. Jacobs and the impending response of more nurses from the other side of the building running down the hallway. There was no way out of this. There was no way to explain it. Hanging on to this job was the priority less than 24 hours ago. Now I was going to be locked away forever, either in prison or in asylum. My heart and mind were racing. I got the feeling I'd gotten bef- I'd got feeling I'd gotten before passing out before. My vision began to pulsate. My consciousness was going in and out for longer periods. The darkness was setting in when I heard a faint voice. It was muffled, similar to hearing something underwater. Slowly, it got clearer. I focused as hard as I could. It was the Ambrosian chant. The nurses walked in one by one into the room, stepping over the silent but still writhing body of the hospice nurse. The chanting became hypnotic. My heart slowed and my breathing normalized again. I didn't understand a word of it, but found my mouth moving in sync with theirs. Two nuns walked to the other side of the bed and bent down over the body of Mrs. Jacobs, picked her up, and laid her on the bed. The blood on her face and bruises on her body vanished. Another nun twirled her wrist while walking on the puddle of blood. The blood slowly faded. (coughs) Mother Melinda made an entrance by herself, walking with grace and stoicism. We have chosen you. It was the same voice as what I heard before, but the tone was softer, more persuasive. We are here for for you. We will help you. I looked down at the hospice nurse. Two more nuns were tending to her. The pen, clipboard, and papers were organized and put in her hands as she floated to her feet. The nuns placed the hospice nurse next to Mrs. Jacobs and seemed to freeze her in place. Their attention then turned to me. They surrounded me, but the Ambrosian chant kept me calm. Forming a circle, they put their hands on me. My body turned transparent. My soul was chilled to the inner core. Mother Melinda then started walking out the door while the nuns followed in a single line. Two of them led me by the hand into the hallway along the group, along with the group. Time stood still. I could see a group of nurses running down the hall toward Mrs. Jacobs' room, frozen in mid-stride. Mother Melinda walked back to her room. The accord of nuns continued on. I glanced in the room as we passed, watching Mother Melinda lay down. She winked at me just as she went out of view. I'm not sure what Diane will think, but that doesn't matter anymore. Nothing matters but following this chant to wherever it leads me. I am at peace. That was a really good story. I love old, like, not asylum, but, well, I love asylum stories, but, like, nursing home stories. Yeah. That was definitely a good one. That was a good one. So, once again, that was user unit 256. You can check out on Reddit and also YouTube. Alright, up next we have a story called my mom kept me safe with the text code. She just used it. And this is from Reddit user Katarina RA. My mom was my whole world when I was growing up. When I was seven, my father left my mom and me after she found him having an open affair with a coworker. He beat her up for having the audacity to leave him. 
but she got the house and scrubbed him from our lives. She decided she would focus on herself and taking care of other women, so she worked for lots of women's shelters and such. She eventually became a court counselor and social worker for abused women and children, and she really helped people get out of abusive situations. She understood the world isn't always kind to women. Being the amazing woman she was, she knew growing up as a girl it is already hard, so we had safety codes and phrases built in to keep me safe. She also had a special rule that if I was in trouble, I could call her or text her in our special way and she would come get me, no questions asked and no consequences. That way, if I was in trouble, I could call her without fear of her reaction or punishment. She told me she understood being a teen means making choices of your own and sometimes those are really stupid choices, but they shouldn't cost me my innocence. She cared first and foremost for my safety. When I was 11, I went on my first sleepover and I just wasn't comfortable. I wanted to go home, but I didn't want my friend's feelings to get hurt. Our, punct- our code was two punctuations. If I used two of any punctuation at the end, that, mean I- that meant I needed help or wanted to leave, but didn't want a person near me to know. Me. Hey, Mom. Two exclamation points. Mom. Hey, your uncle just called and I might need to come get you. Can you tell your friend you have to leave? Me. Do I have to? With two question marks. Mom. Yes. Please pack up. That way, I saved face and could blame my mom. I did use it from time to time, but it was rare. I knew I always had that safety net growing up, though I was pretty safe in the area we lived in. It was a small town on the outskirts of a college town, and I was advanced for my age, so most of my friends were the kids my mom was always around with the shelters, and they were pretty laid-back kids for the most part. I also hung around the shelters, and the women would talk to me like I was grown, which was nice considering I was closer in age to half of them than my mom was. I didn't hang out with any rebellious kids and never really did anything stupid enough to be noted until college. When I started college two years early, I realized realized really quickly how safe my little town was. I was graduating early and only 16, but the college I went to was the one right next to our town, and I could live at home and drive to campus and such. I had gotten drunk a small handful of times, but my friends and I were always safe and didn't drive. My first frat party was a lot. I'd never seen so many drunk people doing such crazy stuff. It was exhilarating, but also really overwhelming. I ended up finding a quiet corner with a few people chilling. I struck up a conversation with a cute guy and he offered to get me a drink. I know, dumb, naive girl. I didn't think twice and drank the drink. About 10 minutes later, I started feeling really strange and went into the bathroom. I had my phone in my hand while I heard Mr. Polite knocking on the door, but I could barely see my screen as I texted my mom. Me. I'm at Street Redacted. Can I stay a little past curfew? Two question marks. Mom. Absolutely not. I'm coming to pick you up right now, young lady. Me. Two two exclamation points. It was all I could see to press in my rapidly blurring state before the guy managed to get the door open and help me out of the bathroom. He checked my phone, saw the messages to my mom, and with a snide huff, called me a worthless baby, kicked me in the thigh, and left me sitting in the hallway alone. I know for a fact my mom got me out of a horrible situation that night. Part of our code was if we included an address, it was an emergency. An address meant danger. She had burned that into my memory. Know the address, write it down, copy it as a memo on your phone, anything. So I memorized addresses before I went to parties, and she saved me that night. 
She didn't get mad I was drinking or somewhere she had warned me against going. She was just so worried about me and wanted me to be okay. That night, she took me to the hospital and they put me on saline and something else to help flush the drug from my system. I just remember mom sitting by my bed, looking relieved, but still worried. I didn't realize how dangerous that situation could have gotten, but she did. Beyond that, I don't remember ever needing the code. She talked to me and told me the hard truths of being a young woman in today's world after I sobered up, and I've been very careful ever since. Last month, my mom passed away of a fatal heart attack. She had always had a weak heart, and she was saving up money to get a pacemaker, but it just didn't happen fast enough. I was completely devastated. I thought of my mom as a permanent fixture in my life, the rock that was always keeping me grounded and safe. She was immortal in my eyes, and I didn't know what I was going to do, how I was going to move on with my life without my confidant, my protector. I just didn't know what to do. When I opened her door and she wasn't there, I just cried. Knowing she wouldn't ever be there again was just so horrible. I texted her phone, and it rang on the table. I looked at it and wanted to throw it across the room, but I could never do that. I would never do that. Could never do that. She loved that damn phone. She loved being able to have her pictures and music all together and play her phone games. She would sit and watch short films and funny videos for hours after she should be sleeping. It was her guilty pleasure, that phone. That's when the thought struck me. I remembered the funeral director told me I could place items in her casket that were important to her, and I decided then and there I would clone her phone on my computer to save all her data and pictures, and I would give her her phone. I loved the idea of her playing her phone games and laughing at videos in the afterlife. The thought made me smile and took a sliver of grief away. I knew it was silly, but I didn't know how long her cell, phone, her cell bill was paid, for, paid up for it but I just couldn't stop thinking about how fitting it would be. She always did joke about coming back to haunt me just to play her games and watch videos, so why not give her something to tie her over until she sorted out how to haunt me to to get her fix? Her funeral was sad but lovely. She was surrounded in her favorite flowers, tiger lilies, and birds of paradise. Woman after woman came up to me and told me how much of a difference my mom made in her life. Despite my grief, I couldn't help but be proud of my mom and proud to be her daughter. Getting home after the wake and more condolences, I finally sat down on mom's couch and turned my ringer on for the first time since I left the funeral. Immediately, I got a missed text notification. Mom, I love you too, with two periods. I stared at my phone. The text I had sent her the day she died was there right before it, so I knew it wasn't a spoofed number. I thought for a minute that this was some prank, but I couldn't figure out who would do something like this. I decided to assume it was a well-meaning friend of my mom's who maybe shared her number. Me. Please don't text me from this number. This is my mom's number and she just passed away. I waited. I saw the three dots of typing. My heart was in my throat as I waited to get a text back from whoever was using my mom's phone number. Mom, I'm at redacted location. Can you come visit me? Two question marks. My heart froze in my chest. I hadn't noticed in the first message. I was too freaked out two periods. I reread the second message. That was the cemetery's location with two question marks. She had to have been buried alive. I called the funeral director and begged him to meet me back at the plot. Something was wrong. He swore up and down she couldn't be alive. They couldn't. They didn't do an autopsy, but she was dead. I just cried and begged and showed him the text until he finally agreed to meet me and help me find out what was going on. 
I put that phone in my mother's casket myself before they sealed it and lowered it down. Nobody has that phone but her. Finally convinced nothing would soothe my panicked crying, he called an emergency exhumation. The ground was still freshly filled in, so getting her dug up was fast was easy. They opened her casket and her phone was in her hand rather than in the purse at her side I had put in there with her. On her screen was an unsent message to me. Mom. Under me. Two periods. That was the day they found the first body. Teenaged girls had been disappearing over the years at a slightly raised rate for the last six years or so, but most were assumed to be runaways and ignored. Families had begged for the police to look for their children, but it fell on deaf ears. It turns out the cemetery caretaker would stake out grieving families. He was stalking the girls and would then kidnap them when they were coming home from school. He would kill them and bury them under fresh graves before putting in the casket and filling them in, hiding all evidence of his crimes in plain sight. After finding his maps and his souvenirs, they were able to give closure to 27 families. To me, the most chilling evidence they found that a, that a detective reluctantly showed me at my insistence, it was a collection of pictures of my mom's funeral where my 13-year-old niece's picture was circled. I know you guys are going to ask, so I'll tell you. I did get one last text from my mom. It was a week after all the media calmed down and I was able to return to my grief. It's hard to grieve when people are questioning you about everything and calling you a hero. I knew I wasn't, but they just didn't want to listen to my story. They just assumed I saw something before they lowered mom's casket down. So after I finally got a chance to sit down and be alone, I put on one of my mom's favorite horror movies and I texted her one last time. I didn't expect anything supernatural. I just felt like it would give me a little closure. Me. I love you, mom. I miss you so much. I hope you are happy wherever you are now. I set my phone down and wiped away the tears that were flowing freely. This movie was still as good as the first time she showed it to me, and it's cathartic to feel these emotions. I was genuinely startled when my mom's text ring phone went off. Mom, I love you too, honey, and I am. That story got to me. Creepy. Well, yeah, creepy, but also, like, I'm very close to my mom. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's a scary story, but had a lump in my throat the first time I read it so I was so happy when the when the writer was like yeah you can you know you can go ahead and use it I was like oh, yes thank you so much so Katarina R.A. I really appreciate you letting me read that out loud and um, everybody go check her out and that was a great one thank you thank you We have a story called My Mom Kept Me Safe with a Text Code. She just used it. And this is from Reddit user Katarina RA. My mom was my whole world when I was growing up. When I was seven, my father left my mom and me after she found him having an open affair with a coworker. He beat her up for having the audacity to leave him, but she got the house and scrubbed him from our lives. She decided she would focus on herself and taking care of other women, so she worked for lots of women's shelters and such. She eventually became a court counselor and social worker for abused women and children, and she really helped people get out of abusive situations. She understood the world isn't always kind to women. 
being the amazing woman she was, she knew growing up as a girl it already is already hard, so we had safety codes and phrases built in to keep me safe. She also had a special rule that if I was in trouble, I could call her or text her in our special way and she would come get me, no questions asked and no consequences. That way, if I was in trouble, I could call her without fear of her reaction or punishment. She told me she understood being a teen means making choices of your own, and sometimes those are really stupid choices, but they shouldn't cost me my innocence. She cared first and foremost for my safety. When I was 11, I went on my first sleepover and I just wasn't comfortable. I wanted to go home, but I didn't want my friend's feelings to get hurt. Our, punct- our code was two punctuations. If I used two of any punctuation at the end, that, mean I- that meant I needed help or wanted to leave, but didn't want a person near me to know. Me. Hey, Mom. Two exclamation points. Mom. Hey, your uncle just called and I might need to come get you. Can you tell your friend you have to leave? Me. Do I have to? With two question marks. Mom. Yes. Please pack up. That way, I saved face and can blame my mom. I did use it from time to time, but it was rare. I knew I always had that safety net growing up, though I was pretty safe in the area we lived in. It was a small town on the outskirts of a college town, and I was advanced for my age, so most of my friends were the kids my mom was always around with the shelters, and they were pretty laid-back kids for the most part. I also hung around the shelters, and the women would talk to me like I was grown, which was nice considering I was closer in age to half of them than my mom was. I didn't hang out with any rebellious kids and never really did anything stupid enough to be noted until college. When I started college two years early, I realized... I realized really quickly how safe my little town was. I was graduating early and only 16, but the college I went to was the one right next to our town, and I could live at home and drive to campus and such. I had gotten drunk a small handful of times, but my friends and I were always safe and didn't drive. My first frat party was a lot. I'd never seen so many drunk people doing such crazy stuff. It was exhilarating, but also really overwhelming. I ended up finding a quiet corner with a few people chilling. I struck up a conversation with a cute guy and he offered to get me a drink. I know, dumb naive girl. I didn't think twice and drank the drink. About 10 minutes later, I started feeling really strange and went into the bathroom. I had my phone in my hand while I heard Mr. Polite knocking on the door, but I could barely see my screen as I texted my mom. Me. I'm at Street Redacted. Can I stay a little past curfew? Two question marks. Mom. Absolutely not. I'm coming to pick you up right now, young lady. Me. Two two exclamation points. It was all I could see to press in my rapidly blurring state before the guy managed to get the door open and help me out of the bathroom. He checked my phone, saw the messages to my mom, and with a snide huff, called me a worthless baby, kicked me in the thigh, and left me sitting in the hallway alone. I know for a fact my mom got me out of a horrible situation that night. Part of our code was if we included an address, it was an emergency. An address meant danger. She had burned that into my memory. Know the address, write it down, copy it as a memo on your phone, anything. So I memorized addresses before I went to parties, and she saved me that night. She didn't get mad I was drinking or somewhere she had warned me against going. She was just so worried about me and wanted me to be okay. That night, she took me to the hospital, and they put me on saline and something else to help flush the drug from my system. I just remember mom sitting by my bed, looking relieved, but still worried. I didn't realize how dangerous that situation could have gotten, but she did. Beyond that, I don't remember ever needing the code. 
She talked to me and told me the hard truths of being a young woman in today's world after I sobered up, and I've been very careful ever since. Last month, my mom passed away of a fatal heart attack. She had always had a weak heart, and she was saving up money to get a pacemaker, but it just didn't happen fast enough. I was completely devastated. I thought of my mom as a permanent fixture in my life, the rock that was always keeping me grounded and safe. She was immortal in my eyes, and I didn't know what I was going to do, how I was going to move on with my life without my confidant, my protector. I just didn't know what to do. When I opened her door and she wasn't there, I just cried. Knowing she wouldn't ever be there again was just so horrible. I texted her phone, and it rang on the table. I looked at it and wanted to throw it across the room, but I could never do that. I would never do that. Could never do that. She loved that damn phone. She loved being able to have her pictures and music all together and play her phone games. She would sit and watch short films and funny videos for hours after she should be sleeping. It was her guilty pleasure, that phone. That's when the thought struck me. I remembered the funeral director told me I could place items in her casket that were important to her, and I decided then and there I would clone her phone on my computer to save all her data and pictures, and I would give her her phone. I loved the idea of her playing her phone games and laughing at videos in the afterlife. The thought made me smile and took a sliver of grief away. I knew it was silly, but I didn't know how long her cell phone, her cell bill was paid for, paid up for it. But I just couldn't stop thinking about how fitting it would be. She always did joke about coming back to haunt me just to play her games and watch videos. So why not give her something to tie her over until she sorted out how to haunt me to, to get her fixed? Her funeral was sad, but lovely. She was surrounded in her favorite flowers, tiger lilies, and birds of paradise. Woman after woman came up to me and told me how much of a difference my mom made in her life. Despite my grief, I couldn't help but be proud of my mom and proud to be her daughter. Getting home after the wake and more condolences, I finally sat down on mom's couch and turned my ringer on for the first time since I left the funeral. Immediately, I got a missed text notification. Mom, I love you too, with two periods. I stared at my phone. The text I had sent her the day she died was there right before it, so I knew it wasn't a spoofed number. I thought for a minute that this was some prank, but I couldn't figure out who would do something like this. I decided to assume it was a well-meaning friend of my mom's who maybe shared her number. Me. Please don't text me from this number. This is my mom's number and she just passed away. I waited. I saw the three dots of typing. My heart was in my throat as I waited to get a text back from whoever was using my mom's phone number. Mom, I'm at redacted location. Can you come visit me? Two question marks. My heart froze in my chest. I hadn't noticed in the first message. I was too freaked out. Two periods. I reread the second message. That was the cemetery's location with two question marks. She had to have been buried alive. I called the funeral director and begged him to meet me back at the plot. Something was wrong. He swore up and down she couldn't be alive. They couldn't. They didn't do an autopsy, but she was dead. I just cried and begged and showed him the text until he finally agreed to meet me and help me find out what was going on. I put that phone in my mother's casket myself before they sealed it and lowered it down. Nobody has that phone but her. Finally convinced nothing would soothe my panicked crying, he called an emergency exhumation. The ground was still freshly filled in, so getting her dug up was fast was easy. They opened her casket and her phone was in her hand rather than in the purse at her side I had put in there with her. 
On her screen was an unsent message to me. Mom. Under me. Two periods. That was the day they found the first body. Teenaged girls had been disappearing over the years at a slightly raised rate for the last six years or so, but most were assumed to be runaways and ignored. Families had begged for the police to look for their children, but it fell on deaf ears. It turns out the cemetery caretaker would stake out grieving families. He was stalking the girls and would then kidnap them when they were coming home from school. He would kill them and bury them under fresh graves before putting in the casket and filling them in, hiding all evidence of his crimes in plain sight. After finding his maps and his souvenirs, they were able to give closure to 27 families. To me, the most chilling evidence they found that a, tech, that a detective reluctantly showed me at my insistence, it was a collection of pictures of my mom's funeral where my 13-year-old niece's picture was circled. I know you guys are going to ask, so I'll tell you. I did get one last text from my mom. It was a week after all the media calmed down and I was able to return to my grief. It's hard to grieve when people are questioning you about everything and calling you a hero. I knew I wasn't, but they just didn't want to listen to my story. They just assumed I saw something before they lowered mom's casket down. So after I finally got a chance to sit down and be alone, I put on one of my mom's favorite horror movies and I texted her one last time. I didn't expect anything supernatural. I just felt like it would give me a little closure. Me. I love you, mom. I miss you so much. I hope you are happy wherever you are now. I set my phone down and wiped away the tears that were flowing freely. This movie was still as good as the first time she showed it to me, and it's cathartic to feel these emotions. I was genuinely startled when my mom's text ring phone went off. Mom, I love you too, honey, and I am. That story got to me. Creepy. Well, yeah, creepy, but also, like, I'm very close to my mom. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's a scary story, but... It had a lump in my throat the first time I read it, so I was so happy when the when the writer was like, "Yeah, you can, you know, you can go ahead and use it." I was like, oh, "Yes, thank you so much." So, Katarina Ra, I really appreciate you letting me read that out loud, and um, everybody go check her out. And that was a great one. Thank you, thank you. issues I reddit user eclipsed underscore earth my husband had an affair I found out because he brought her home when he didn't realize I was there it burst through the door lips locked making out in our breezeway when he finally saw me after he had peeled her off of him his mouth dropped open she was one of his oldest friends and I had met her many times We'd even gone to her house to have dinner on several occasions with her husband. She wasn't an innocent stranger that didn't realize he was in, she was involved with a married man. He opened his mouth to explain, and I shushed him. I made you lunch. Come eat, I said. They just stood there, not knowing what to do. Just come sit down. There's enough for both of you. They sat. Baby, I... I don't know what to say, he began. We... It... Just kind of happened. I nodded handing them their plates and sitting myself. They both acted like they had never seen spaghetti before. I had made it just the way he liked it. He stared at me, searching for more words. She sat silent, staring at her plate, frozen. How long have you been together? I asked. 
baby, I think we should... He began. I said, how long have you been together? I nearly shouted. I didn't want to shout. She yelped like I had hit her. Three months. We've only had sex once. We've just been talking, he said. Please don't tell my husband, she cried. I started laughing. It was just so damn funny. The mistress, the adulterer, worried about this would do to her marriage. My husband attempted to cut in, but I was nearly hysterical. There were tears streaming down my face, and I could barely take in a breath. Look, I'm not doing this, my husband finally said, standing up and turning to leave. He took her arm. Let's go. What do you think you're doing? I asked. Leaving, he responded. I'll take her home and be back later to talk to you. You don't get to just walk out, I said. Not after I waved my hand at her in a gesture of confusion. This? I fucked up. I know I did. His tone softened a little and he took a step towards me. She means nothing to me. I love you. You're my everything. I just, I don't know, made a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. You didn't make a mistake. You purposely carried on an affair with a married woman, I said. Well, maybe you should have listened to and talked to him more, she said. He's not the only one to blame here, honey. Don't ever talk about my husband like you know him. You know nothing, I said through bared teeth. Well, I obviously know something about him, like how to turn him on, she hissed. Come on, he said, jerking her arm, taking you home. I jumped in front of them, blocking their way. No, you will sit now, I commanded. They sat back at the table, and while I would like to let you continue believing it was just my commanding presence, it was probably more the giant knife I had used to chop the vegetables that I was now wielding in my hand. Eat, I said. They stared at me. Eat, I yelled, brandishing the knife. They ate. We finally talked after dinner. She was a puddle of tears. He, he was ridiculous. I never wanted to hurt you. I don't want to lose you. I love you. He was nearly begging. You aren't losing me and I'm not going anywhere. I said, kissing his cheek. She stayed all day and we talked. I made them drinks and later in the day, dinner. After dinner, we all went to bed. It's been like that ever since. Every night, he sleeps between us in our now shared king-sized bed. I don't have to worry about him cheating anymore either because his mistress is well within my reach. He'd become sullen and withdrawn after a while, and I didn't know why. After all, he got everything he wanted. He wanted me. He wanted her. He wanted to stay in our house and in our bed. I let him have all of those things. Still, some days I'd see him crying. I'll admit, I did take his phone away, avoiding temptation. And he had to start working from home while we rebuild trust. But I don't understand what's so upsetting about that. Last night, I heard him talking to her. He kept saying he was sorry. When I walked in the room, they aren't allowed to talk without me present. He begged me to take her away from here. He couldn't keep looking at her. He was finally as disgusted as I was at the idea of him sleeping with her. I agreed, and I took her, to, I took her home to her husband. He broke down in tears when he saw her. I didn't stay for the reunion. I had been watching through the trees. I was careful and had parked my car down the street in the woods. I was confident she wouldn't tell him where she'd been all these weeks. She was so worried he would find out about the affair after all. When I got home, my husband wasn't in much better spirits, but he was better. I'm sure we'll work it out. I'm afraid we'll have to get a new bed, though. Riding corpses leave such nasty stains. <laughs> you good one, too. Don't cheat on your wife. Do not. Because. And if you do, don't eat spaghetti. <laughs>
is called I found an extremely bizarre internet survey by reddit user mr underscore outlaw underscore nobody knows what rock bottom truly is until they've hit it being abruptly fired from a job you've worked at for the past 10 years and then catching your girl cheating on you with your replacement really makes a man think hell my student loans aren't even paid off yet what a shit show life this is After a rather boozy night that consisted of sending out about four dozen resumes and horrendously written cover letters, I passed out. When I woke up the next morning, I decided to at least try and make some money at home while waiting for an interview. At that moment, I thought the best way to go about it was completing those internet surveys that yielded $5 subway gift cards and other shit like that after about an hour of answering questions. I mean, I didn't have any other marketable skills that could have yielded immediate income. It was either that or wasting the day away playing computer games. At least I wouldn't have to pay for food. I did these surveys for about five hours before nearly passing out. It was way more excruciating than I had originally anticipated. At the end of those five hours, I had accumulated about $45 in cash and gift cards. $9 an hour. Not like I was making much before that, much more than that before. I was about to close my laptop up for the day and head to a bar in an attempt to drown out my melancholy when I first saw it. It shouldn't even have been noticeable, but for one reason or another, it was. At the bottom corner of the website that I was on existed a tiny, singular advertisement. Maybe it was the sim- simplicity that got me. Black, plain black letters in a tacky font that read, Surveys for Cash, overlapped a completely white background. At least they were direct with the message. One more couldn't hurt, I thought. Might as well scrape together a little bit more booze money before heading out. I sat back down, clicked on the picture link, and prepared myself to grind through some more painstaking inquiries. The first few questions were simple enough. I guess they weren't really questions, but more data collection. My name, age, and occupation. I thought it was kind of weird that they also asked my height and weight, but it wasn't unheard of. The first real question was a different story, though. I must have stared at it, eyes wide and mouth agape, for God knows how long. What in the actual hell? In plain English, this is what popped up on my screen. How strong is your urge to currently look behind you? There were five options below, ranging from not at all to overwhelming. There was no feasible reason why I should have been afraid at that moment, but I was. I tightened my breathing, trying to make out any subtle noises behind me. There were none. After maybe about five minutes, I worked up the courage to look. There was nothing. I sighed in relief and scoffed at myself at the same time. This must have been some kind of joke. However, I decided to entertain it, answering neutral, and clicking on to the next question. This is what it read. Why would you look behind you? I smirked, funny, before simply typing in a, I don't know, in the response box and once again clicking next. This was the third question. You're on a plane. Apart from you, there was only one other passenger who was sitting somewhere behind you. At some point, you get up to go to the washroom and find that the man is gone. You check to see if he's in the only bathroom on the plane, but he isn't. What do you do? Again, I must have stupidly stared at it for nearly 10 minutes. 
was this some kind of obscure personality test? I mean, it must have been, right? Right? I put the same answer that I used for the last question. I don't know. It was true. I didn't know. How was I supposed to answer this shit? I clicked next again. Now more intrigued than anything. The fourth question went like this. You wake up in woods unfamiliar to you. It's nighttime, and the moonlight provides you with only slight visibility. About 30 feet away from you, there is a small, dimly illuminated cabin. The door is open, and a smiling woman is motioning for you to come in. Do you go? Explain why. This question wasn't necessarily weirder than the last one, so my conjecture that this was some kind of odd personality test was still feasible. I actually make an attempt to answer this one, something along the lines of going into the cabin because there's simply nowhere else to go. Once again, I click next. Probably shouldn't have. The questions started getting fucked up. They weren't too gory or explicit, nothing like that. They were just stranger, weirder, more psychologically disturbing. If you're wondering why the hell I kept going, I can't really give you an explicit answer to that. I just felt like I had to. It was an esoteric, creeping sensation that I can't quite explain away, but I could never shake it, so I just went on. Some of the questions that stood out were, suppose that you wake up one night to find an elevator in your house. During every midnight after that, it opens up for five minutes, revealing an exact copy of yourself that gets progressively more injured as time goes on. Do you keep living like this, or do you enter the elevator once and end it all? And you're in a hotel room, but you're awoken by a rapid knocking at your window. You peek through the blinds, seeing what appears to be a man missing both his eyes. He puts his mouth to the glass and tells you to kill the woman in the bathroom immediately. Do you listen to him? This was one of my least favorites. You are watching home videos with your mother. One of the tapes include footage of her being murdered by a masked intruder. Your mother simply laughs at this footage without saying anything. In your opinion, is this a cause for concern? In addition to this insanity-inducing shit, there were some rather disconcerting events happening in real life as well. I received a knock at the door about 30 minutes in. I looked through my peephole to find a guy standing there, frantically shaking his head and mouthing no while making direct eye contact with me. He looked terrified. Obviously, I didn't open up. I received about 10 phone calls from someone named The Auditor on my caller ID. They left a message every time, but each one was just a recording that consisted of somebody saying numbers through heavy static. Actually, it sounded more like screaming now that I think about it. About an hour into this thing, and I was on the verge of a mental breakdown. I was petrified of looking behind me, even though there was no indication that anything should have been there. I heard some soft scratching coming from my vent at one point, so I moved my couch over it. Eventually, I reached what appeared to be the end of the survey. However, it wasn't a question, it was simply a statement. Don't let them in, they're not to be trusted. Almost as if it were on cue, I heard more knocking at my door about five seconds after reading this. As slowly and silently as I could, I moved over and looked through the peephole once again. It was a different person than the one I had seen earlier. She was a woman looking to be in her mid-twenties. She was wearing a thick blazer despite it being around 90 degrees Fahrenheit outside. She was also wearing sunglasses, so I could never really tell where she was actually looking. She eventually took a piece of paper out of her pocket and slipped it under the door. I looked down and read it. It's lying. Leave your apartment immediately. It's been about half an hour since. I can't bring myself to look at the computer screen, nor at the woman outside. She's still there. 
I can see the shadows of her feet underneath my door. I heard my bedroom window open a few minutes ago, but I've since jammed the door shut with a chair. I can hear some kind of distorted muttering coming from behind it now. Maybe rock bottom wasn't so bad. But what the fuck am I supposed to do here? I don't know. I don't know either. Dude is stuck. Wow. He's in a bad situation. Oh, yeah. Can't stay in. Can't go out. What do you do? What do you do? I don't know, but Mr. Outlaw needs to come up with a sequel and tell us how everything turned out. Because I want to know. We do. 